Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. We hope to enrich your life through reaching, serving, giving, and building. As you listen to this teaching, be inspired to fulfill your God-given destiny through the power of His Word. Uh, my partner in crime last time we did an underground, Michael Capagna, is teaching this same topic right now over at our Denham Springs campus. And so y'all pray for him. Uh, we, we got together and we studied and we coordinated. And so we're actually uh, partnered up. And so uh, the parts of this message that are really good came from me. And the parts that lag may have come from another source. <laughs> I'm sure he's saying the same thing right now over in Denham Springs. But uh, when I was 17 years old, I became uh, a Christian. I really got serious about my faith. And I started reading the Bible. I started studying the Bible when I was 17 years old. I knew about the Bible, but I wasn't familiar at all with any of the concepts or I couldn't tell you the difference between a, uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Testament or an epistle versus a gospel account. And there were two men who really taught me how to study the Bible. One of them is Pastor Mike Heyman, who was my youth pastor. Come on, clap your hands so we have great pastors. Him and Pastor Rachel just invested in me from a very young age. And then my high school coach, who is also here tonight, Coach Keith over here, wave, wave to us, Coach. Coach Keith, these two men taught me the value of studying the scriptures. And I'm gonna just be a little bit candid with you. When I first started studying the Bible, I really enjoyed the New Testament. <laughs> I liked it. The New Testament was all about Jesus. It was super fun. There were all kinds of miracles and, you know, I, I, I felt safe. But every now, oh, except for whenever I studied Revelation, I never went to that one. But every now and then I would venture into the Old Testament and it, it kind of was a little scary. And I was, I would think, man, I don't, it, it almost feels like, it's two different books. Like it's, it's like the Bible is one book, but it feels like two different things. The, the Old Testament feels so different than the New Testament. And as I continued to study the New Testament, I neglected the Old Testament. And I started noticing that if I was really going to ever understand the New Testament, I had to understand the Old Testament. That my faith and my understanding of Jesus and who he was would never be complete just studying the New Testament. In fact, I noticed this pattern starting to emerge as I studied the New Testament. It seemed like everybody in the New Testament kept quoting the Old Testament. Have you ever noticed that? Everyone in the New Testament seemed to know the Old Testament pretty well. And they kept quoting it and they kept talking about it. And I started noticing people like Paul and Peter and, and John making constant reference to Jesus in the Old Testament. And I remember I came across this passage. And this is the passage in the New Testament I want to open up with. It's found in Luke chapter 24. And the context behind this story is Jesus has just... Uh, risen from the grave. So he died, and three days later he rose. But the disciples didn't realize it yet. And so there were a couple of his disciples who were completely discouraged. They were completely thrown off. All of their hopes and dreams of the coming Messiah died on that cross. 
they, when they saw Jesus dying on that cross, they saw everything that they had been living for leaving. They were discouraged. They were broken. They, this whole movement, this whole thing called Christianity seemed to be coming to an end. And as they were walking and leaving the city, a traveler came alongside them. And the traveler was Jesus, but they couldn't recognize him. He had hid himself from them in such a way that he didn't allow their minds to perceive who he was. And he begins to talk to these two disciples, and he's like, why are you so down? And they're like, well, why are we so down? Where have you been? That's a whole nother question where he had been, but where have you been? And he's saying, well, tell me what's going on. And they're like, look, we had all of our hopes in this Messiah. We had all of our thoughts and faith in this Messiah. And then he died. Game over, the end, time to go find something else to do. And Jesus says, you've missed it. You've missed it. Don't you know what the scriptures, and now when he says scriptures, he means the Old Testament. Don't you know what the scriptures has to say about the Messiah? And this is picking up in verse 27 of chapter 24. It says, in beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all, so everybody say all, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, here's the thing. I would give every dollar in my bank account to hear what he said. <laughs> I wish that those guys would have taken the time to write down everything that he said. Thanks for nothing. But this is incredible. He is walking, and it says, beginning with Moses. And when he says Moses, what, he mean, what it means here, Luke, it's, a, it's an ancient way of describing the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. So the Torah. So starting in the Torah, Jesus starts unpacking all of these thoughts in scriptures about himself and says, so he starts with the Torah and then he says, all the prophets. Well, you know who are the prophets? That's every other book. So he goes through the entire Old Testament and he starts unpacking these things. And I realized when I began to study this that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Bible isn't, well, there's some stuff in the Old Testament and then Jesus just shows up in the New Testament. The entirety of scripture is centered around Jesus himself. So let's take in our first note. The Old Testament is Christ concealed while the New Testament is Christ revealed. The Old Testament is Christ concealed. There is a concealment behind the Old Testament. He is not blatant blatantly obvious in the Old Testament. You have to find them. It's like a Where's Waldo. You remember that game? I was terrible at that game. I could never find Waldo. It's like Where's Waldo, but he's there, and you just have to look for him. Um, you know, there, I think there are really two types of people in the world. There's a people, there are people who like chocolate, and there are people who love chocolate. There might be a few people who hate chocolate, but don't trust anything that those people ever say. There's really two, I'm, I like chocolate, I do. Ch chocolate's good, but my wife, she loves chocolate. See, I am totally content having just a chocolate chip cookie. Just a straight up old chocolate chip cookie 
where, did they put the chocolate chip cookie up yet? I told them to give me a picture of a chocolate chip cookie. There it is. All right. I'm cool with the chocolate chip cookie. You see, you're eating the chocolate chip cookie, and there's chocolate every now and then. And people who like chocolate are totally content with the chocolate chip cookie. But people who love chocolate, you know what they like? Chocolate brownies. I like having that behind me. See, my wife would much prefer the brownie to the cookie. And I think sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, we look at it as if Jesus is kind of just sprinkled in. You see, we look at him like he's a, like the Old Testament is like a chocolate cookie. Okay, yeah, Jesus is there, but he's like every few bites. He's just kind of scattered around in there every now and then. But can I tell you, he's not, he's not scattered around like a seasoning. He's baked into every bite like a brownie. You see, you can't take one bite of the Old Testament and not come across Jesus. And so my hope tonight is for, and this is a, uh, this is just, this is just a, a catalyst. This is, this is not all-encompassing. I cannot go into everything that I wish I could go into in the next four hours. Again, y'all keep laughing at that. I'm not sure why. But my hope is that you would begin to see the Old Testament not like the cookie, but like the brownie. Because the cookie is good, but it's not complete. You see, Jesus has been baked into every bite from the very beginning. And I think there are three ways we can see Jesus. And the first way, and this is the number one on your, on your uh, sheet, is the word previews. Previews. So it's interesting, if you've ever studied um, angelology, you ever studied angels, there is an interesting figure that appears only in the Old Testament. He never appears in the New Testament. And the Bible calls him the angel of the Lord. And so the first blank here I want to give you is an angel of the Lord versus the angel of the Lord. And so when you look in the Old Testament, you see angels popping up and doing different things, giving different messages. But every now and then, you see this one consistent figure. And the Bible calls him the angel of the Lord. And it's very interesting because in the same text, the Bible will call the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and then in the next verse call him the Lord. There are moments where it says, God is talking to the angel of the Lord. So there seems to be some kind of separation. There seems to be some kind of distinction between the two. And then in the very next moment, it's calling the angel of the Lord, the Lord. And this has always confused Jewish scholars because when they would read this, they would say, it doesn't make sense. And so there were times when the angel of the Lord would receive worship that someone would come to the angel of the Lord and worship him, and he accepted that worship, which is something you never see happening by a generic angel, like a, just any old broke-down angel. If you ever tried to worship a broke-down angel, he just like, don't worry about it, all right? And so what happens is, is when these individuals would come into contact with the angel of the Lord, they would worship him as the Lord, 
They would even call him the Lord, and the Bible calls him the Lord. And there are so many occurrences of this. And I believe that this is what's called a Christophany, which is the next fill in the blank. A Christophany, which is an appearance of Christ manifested in the Old Testament before, before his incarnation in the New Testament. And so one thing, I, 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 it wasn't really until I started studying this and even preparing for this and preparing for my Old Testament class, I didn't realize how often the angel of the Lord appeared. You know, Moses said to the, I mean, Moses said to the Lord, he said, I need you to go with us. We need your, your presence. And God said, you have it. You have my presence. And then the angel of the Lord was the one that went with the people. It was, it's so weird. There's a moment where Gideon is talking to the angel of the Lord. And as Gideon is talking to the angel of the Lord, he, he says, he calls him Lord. He calls him Yahweh. And then the angel of the Lord looks over at him and says, yes. It's just this weird dynamic. You see this character. And so some of you may be thinking, but wait. Jesus isn't an angel. He's not an angel. He's God. He's not an angel. And, and that is absolutely correct. But you have to look back at the word angel. The word angel is a Hebrew word, and it means messenger. It means messenger. You see, there were messengers of the Lord, and then there was the messenger of the Lord. You see, in the New Testament, John would say it this way. He would say, there are words, but then there is the word. There is the complete embodiment of the word, and his name is Jesus. And what do messengers give? The word. You see, it's the messenger of the Lord who is the angel of the Lord, who is the word manifest himself. I wrote down a few of these situations that the angel of the Lord appears. He appeared to Hagar in the midst of oppression. He calls to Abraham to not sacrifice Isaac. That is a wonderful, wonderful story to study and to see how it previews Christ. It's, see, when we read that story, we think, oh, well, God says to him, don't sacrifice Isaac. But it's actually the angel of the Lord. You know who appeared to Moses at the burning bush? The angel of the Lord. Yet when Moses saw him, he had to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground. There was something unique about these appearances of the angel of the Lord. One particular appearance that really gets me is found, it's found in 1 Chronicles, and, it's, and you can write this reference down, but it's in chapter 21. And David is doing uh, some really bad things, and he takes a census that he's not supposed to take. And when he does it, God comes to him and he says, I'm going to give you uh, three options. I'm going to let you pick your punishment. Any of you ever had parents who used that same tactic? <laughs> you know, what do you want to be whipped with, you know? And you're like, hmm, let's see. Uh, God says, you're going to pick your punishment. Do you want years of a famine? Do you want months of being overthrown by your enemies? Or do you want days of a plague? And he's like, uh, days sound pretty good to me. Let's go with the days of the plague. And so this whole scene unfolds. And I, and I challenge you to go back and read this story. But the plague is, is literally spreading through the city. And as, 
as it's spreading through the city, it's leading David to a place on a mountain. And it's a place where there's this guy who owns this threshing floor. And as they get there, the Bible says that David looked up in the sky and the angel of the Lord was hovering over the city of Jerusalem with his arm outstretched with a sword. That's like the scariest thing I've ever heard in my life. And this angel, it says the angel of the Lord is standing there and he's got his sword outstretched as a sign of the judgment that God was bringing on the city because of David's sin. And so what does it say David does? It says he falls on his face at the sight of the angel of the Lord. And when he does this, he cries out to the angel and he says, Lord, take me, not them, which is a preview of the work of the Messiah who says, take me, not them. And he says, take me, not them. And so then the angel says to him, I want you to go to the uh, Aruna, the Jebusite, and I want you to buy his threshing floor, and I want you to offer up a sacrifice. And so David goes and he buys the threshing floor, he offers up a sacrifice, and it's only when he offers up the sacrifice that the sword drops and the angel puts the sword back in the sheath. You see, the judgment at that moment, it moved, it moved from the city to the sacrifice itself. And this is a picture of the gospel because a thousand years later, the angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord, he wouldn't be hovering over the city of Jerusalem. He would be hanging over the city of Jerusalem. And he wouldn't be standing with his arms spread out in judgment, his arms would be stretched out receiving judgment. You see, this whole chapter is one giant picture of the gospel. David said this in Psalms uh, 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord, this is a verse that he's writing about Jesus. The angel, the messenger, the word of the Lord encamps around those who fears him and delivers them. You see, there are many appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. There's always one purpose. This is the next fill in the blank. It's the gracious intervention of God. The gracious intervention of God. When you see the angel of the Lord, he is interceding on behalf of the people. So, Next time you're reading the Old Testament, if you are reading a text and you see the angel of the Lord, let, let it become illuminated. This is Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate version of Christ. So first we had our previews. Let's move on to the second one, which is pictures. Pictures of Christ. There are two types of pictures that we can talk about that we'll talk about here. is types and shadows. Types and shadows. So types have to deal more with people, whereas shadows have to deal more with objects. And I'll show you this from Scripture. So Romans chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says this, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a 
type of the one who was to come. What is Paul saying? He's saying that Adam was a type of Christ. He was uh, a person who in many ways embodied who Christ would be. And so when you look in the Old Testament, you see tons of these types of Christ. I'll give you a few of them here. So I'll just give you three. Number one, Jesus is the ultimate Boaz. Jesus is the ultimate Boaz. How many of you have ever uh, read the story of Ruth? It's the story of uh, this foreigner girl who, through great commitment and great cost, decides to become a Jew. And as she becomes part of the tribe of Israel, she embraces poverty. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, is somebody who they, they, all they have is each other. And what they really need is what the Bible calls a kinsman redeemer. Somebody who would come up, who was the rightful heir to buy back the land, to give them land and then to give them a lineage. And Boaz comes in and he does this. And it's one of the most beautiful stories. And I mean, just, it's just an incredible book. It's a short read, go, go read it. But it's at the very end of the book that you see the result of Boaz and his selflessness. You see the line of David established. And so Boaz is a type of Christ, but he's also an ancestor of Christ. Let me give you the second one. Jesus is the ultimate David. Jesus is the ultimate David. One of the most famous stories in all of the Bible is David and Goliath, right? This little shepherd boy has this courage and he, he comes into the scene and, and, and there's this giant and everybody's standing on, these, on these, uh, the tops of the valleys and down in the valley there's this giant that nobody can defeat. And David comes down and he takes out this giant. He wins this victory for all of the people. And we all love that story. And I think sometimes what we do, and I've done this, and it's not bad to do this, but we have to realize that there's a greater, there's something greater happening here. I, I, sometimes I'll read that story and I think, I'm David. If I'm just courageous enough, I, I could take down anything, any giant in my life, and it's gonna be awesome. But that's not really what the Bible's trying to show. You see, Jesus is David. He's the one who comes from a background that no one would expect. He's the one that goes down into the valley of death and fights the greatest enemy that I could never fight. He fights the giant of sin, the giant of death, the giant of shame, and he wins for me a victory that I could never win for myself. So when we read these Bible stories, sometimes we like to put ourselves as the hero. <laughs> I'm the hero. I can be, I'm just kidding. We think we're the hero, but in that story, do you know who we are? We're not David fighting Goliath. We are the weak, shameful Israelites standing up on the hill wondering, can anyone save us? That's who we are in the story. And we need someone else to fight the battle that we can't fight so that we can get the victory we can't win. And Jesus did just that. The third one, Jesus is the ultimate Joseph. 
He's the ultimate Joseph. Boy, the next three Sundays, do not miss the next three Sundays at Healing Place Church. I am so excited about this. Pastor Mike is going to be uh, teaching three weeks on the life of Joseph. And it's going to be so powerful. You don't want to miss this. But what we see here, uh, I, when I did this research, there's a, there's a guy, he's a scholar by the name of Arthur Pink. And I have this document on my computer, um, but he, he lived like 100 years ago, but somebody typed it up. But in one of his writings, he found 60 distinct types of Christ found in the story of Joseph. And so this little chart here, we're gonna put all these on the screen and I'm gonna say them faster than you can write, but maybe they'll keep them on the screen for a little bit. Okay, so Joseph, he was the favored son of his father. Jesus is the favored and only begotten son of his father. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his brothers, the Jewish people. Joseph was thrown into a pit. Jesus was thrown onto the cross. Joseph was sold for the price of a slave. Jesus was sold for the price of a slave. Joseph was forgotten for many years. And Jesus has been forgotten by the Jewish people for 2,000 years. Joseph became a servant in Potiphar's house. Jesus became the suffering servant. Joseph became a prisoner. Jesus became a prisoner of death. Joseph ruled Pharaoh's kingdom. And Jesus rules his father's kingdom. And Joseph saves his brothers at his return. And Jesus will save his brothers at his return. You see, the entire story of Joseph is one giant type of the story of the Messiah. And Jesus is Joseph. And his brothers are the Jewish people. You see, his brothers rejected Joe. They didn't like the favor that the father had put on Joe. And so they thought that they could stop him. So they got rid of him. And then a long time passes. And then they come before him. And just like the Bible says, every knee will bow. These brothers bowed before Joe. And can I tell you this? There's coming a day at Jesus' return that those who crucified him, those who rejected him, will look upon the one that they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his own son and they will cry out and they will bow before him. And they will realize that they had gotten rid of their own salvation. It's one giant type. Did y'all all get this? Everybody wrote all that stuff down? Y'all good to go? Man, y'all good. Man, y'all great. So that's types. Let's talk about shadows. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the author of Hebrews says this about the law of Moses. He says, it's a shadow. Any of you ever chased your shadows when you were a kid? 
And y'all like making shadow puppets and doing fun stuff with your shadow. Yeah, my kids love to do this. And it's so fun because shadows look like us, but we know it's not really us, right? When you look at your shadow, you're like, that's the form of me. It looks like a deformed version of me most of the time. You know, it's this big shadow and you look at it and you're like, okay, it looks like me, but it's not me. And so what the Bible says is the law was just a shadow. It had a form of salvation, but it wasn't really salvation. There was more to salvation than what the law could provide. So let me just give you a couple of shadows here. So when you're looking in the Old Testament, I mean, there are literally hundreds of these shadows. People have dedicated their entire life to studying and finding these. I'll give you two pretty obvious ones that are confirmed in the New Testament. The first shadow is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. How many of y'all ever saw that uh, movie, you know, the Ten Commandments? Anybody grow up seeing that? I was a kid, and we would watch that movie, and it scared me. Uh, that was like the scariest movie. Moses did not seem like a friendly guy, uh, not the kind of guy you want to go to a Waffle House with. And uh, I remember watching that as a kid and watching the plagues. How many of y'all remember the plagues? The, so there are ten plagues. And what's so interesting about these plagues is the rules for the first nine plagues aren't the same rules for the final plague. So the rules for the first nine plagues is this. If you're an Egyptian, you're going to get it. <laughs> Sorry to tell you. If you're an Egyptian, it's coming. Plagues are coming. <laughs> if you're an Israelite, you're good. If you're an Israelite, you, don't worry about it. This ain't going to affect you. So the first nine, it's this, the, the rule is very simple. Egypt's going to get it. Israel, you're good to go. Then you get to the ultimate plague, the final plague, and God completely changes the rule. He says, what will save you is not being an Israelite, and what will condemn you is not being an Egyptian. The only thing that will save you is if you have been marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. Do you see, God completely flips the script. You can be an Israelite not marked by the blood of the lamb, and guess what? You're going to get the last plague. You can be an Egyptian who's in the house marked by the blood of the lamb, and you're going to be safe. And God completely flips the switch. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. You see, you know what that tells me? It doesn't matter what my nationality is. It doesn't matter how smart I am. It doesn't matter how great I am. It doesn't matter how bad I am. It doesn't matter how sinful I am. The only thing that can save me is the blood of the lamb. It is the mark of the blood that matters to the believer, and that is it. That's why we can be in a room this size, and there are so many people from so many different backgrounds. Some of y'all were terrible sinners. Like David Ray, one of the biggest sinners I've ever met in my life. But God could save a man like him. Some of you, you come from a crazy background. Some of you come from a church background. Some of you come from a good home. Some of you come from a crazy home. But you know what? It doesn't matter. 
The only thing, the only mark that matters is the blood of the lamb. Jesus is the blood of the lamb. And so anytime you read about the lamb in the Old Testament, realize that this is a shadow. The second one, the temple. The temple. So the temple is interesting because the way the Jews understood the temple was this, was that there were two realities. There was the reality of the world we live in. You could say reality, you could say dimension, however you want to say it. There was this world. And then there was the reality or the dimension in which God dwelled. The Bible called it the heavens. They knew it was somewhere else. There was the heavens, and then there was earth. And the temple was the place where those two realities and those two dimensions overlapped. That the temple was both at the same time heaven and earth. And it's where God and man could finally be together. You know what the first temple was? The Garden of Eden. It was heaven and it was earth. It's where God and man could dwell together. And so after man was kicked from the garden, God desired to build a new Eden. So he built the temple. And the temple is heaven and it's earth. Jesus says in John chapter two, he calls himself the temple. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it on the third day. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, me, I am the true temple. I am where heaven and earth collide. I am the true embodiment of heaven and I am the true representative of earth. In me are found both. And it's through me, I am the portal to get from earth to heaven. I am the ultimate temple. You wanna take it one step further. Paul actually calls Christians the temple. Because what Paul is saying is just in the same way that heaven finds its place on earth through Jesus, heaven finds its place on earth through you. So we've seen the previews, we've seen the pictures. Let's finish this up. Are y'all enjoying this? Y'all just kind of looking at me like, man, this guy's crazy. And we only have three and a half more hours of this. So number three, the promises, the promises. How many Old Testament promises are there about the Messiah? Scholars count between two and 400. Two and 400 distinct promises of the Messiah. So um, we're gonna go through the first 200 right now. Um, I'll give you three, I'll give you three. And really all of these promises about the Messiah can be categorized into three, one of these three as prophet, priest, and king. First, let's talk about the prophet. So the context in this verse I'm about to read to you is the Israelites have been freed from Egypt and they're standing before Moses. And what's happened is God has made a covenant with them. And in this covenant, they made a very special request. They said, Moses, we don't ever want to see or hear God ever again. This is interesting because it was the first people who were rescued that saw God's glory 
they heard his voice from the mountain and it literally felt like their entire body was going to unravel at his very presence. And they said, we're going to die if we continue to be around this God. See, everybody's always like, oh, well, I want to see God. I'd believe in God if he was real. You know, if I, if I could see him. I'm like, look, you don't want to see God. Because <laughs> the people who did begged not to see him. So say, why doesn't God just show, show himself to us? Because he loves you. <laughs> because sinful, mortal flesh cannot stand in his presence. The people who were in his presence passed out. That's why God says, okay, I'm going to keep the curtain closed, all right? Because if you saw me, you couldn't handle me. And so they say to Moses, we need someone to stand in the gap for us. Why don't you talk to God and then tell me what God says? We trust you. Whatever you say is good to go. So Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. He's going to be one of you. And it is to him that you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. This is what Moses was saying. He's saying, look, I, made a co- I, I, was the, I was the prophet who brought in the covenant. But this isn't the only covenant. This is a temporary covenant. And I'm a temporary prophet. But there's going to be a prophet like me who will come in and he will be a game-changing, covenant-making prophet. And when he comes, he's the one that will stand in the gap between you and God You can't be in God's presence because of your sinfulness, but this prophet will close that gap and you will get to experience God because of this prophet. That's just one. Let's go with priests. All right, let me me give you the fill in the blank for prophet. What was the promise? A covenant-making prophet. A covenant-making prophet was predicted. A covenant-making prophet was predicted. What was predicted about the priest? A self-sacrificing priest was predicted. So you've got a covenant-making prophet and a self-sacrificing priest. One of the best passages to find this in is in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm gonna read to you verse five and then I'm gonna skip down to verse 10. It says this, we all, we've, we've probably all heard about Isaiah 53. It's the, it's the chapter of the suffering servant and he says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Okay, how many of you have heard that, that verse before? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. What is Isaiah saying about this servant 700 years before Christ? He's saying he will come on the scene and he will be utterly crushed 
He will be pierced. Crucifixion didn't even exist when Isaiah prophesied this. Yet he said he'll be pierced. But it's God's will to do this. But why is it God's will to do this? Because there's this priest who's not only the priest, he's the sacrifice. And his own soul will be what is offered up to the Father. And what does it say about him? His days will be prolonged. What does that mean? That means he will be a forever priest. He will live forever. He will somehow both be crushed utterly and yet remain forever. How in the world is that possible? The answer is the resurrection of Jesus. The last one is this, the king. So we got a covenant-making prophet. we got a self-sacrificing priest. And we have a forever reigning king predicted for us. A forever reigning king predicted for us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Which, look, if you guys really want to study Christ in the Old Testament, you could just start with Isaiah because it is all about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 says this. And we read this a lot at Christmas, but this is a, this is a prophecy about uh, Jesus. This is, for, uh, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, so he's going to be good at giving us advice. Mighty God. All right, so he's God, but yet he's a son. That doesn't make any sense. Everlasting Father. Okay, so he's a son and a father. How does that work out? He's the prince of peace. Wait, I thought he was the one ruling everything as the king. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah is saying, look, you can't lock him in. He is a forever reigning king. He's both God and the son at the same time. He's both a descendant of David, yet the Lord of David. He's the ultimate David. He is what David never could be. He is the forever reigning king. And so you see this mosaic in the Old Testament beginning to unfold about the prophet that was to come, about the priest that was to come, and about the king who was to come and reign. And this is how I wanna close this teaching. I finished a few hours early. I started off with this scripture in Luke. Remember the guys talking to Jesus. It says Jesus is, un, is walking with him. He's resurrected and he's unpacking it all. He's unpacking all of these scriptures to these guys. And they say, look, man, we're tired. It's, it's been a rough couple days. Can we just stop for the night and let's eat some food and, and just keep chatting because you seem like you got a lot to say going through the whole Bible. In Luke chapter 24, verses 30 through 32, it says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and he broke it and he gave it to them. And it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he vanished from their sight. Okay, that's crazy. But look what they said to each other. And this is, this is profound. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, something powerful happens when you begin to see that Jesus is at the center of every scripture. He is the centerpiece of every verse. And as Jesus 
is opening their eyes. You see, why did he hide himself from them? Was it some kind of crazy trick? No, it was an illustration. He was trying to show them that they had been blind, that their whole, the whole time that they had been studying the Old Testament, they were blind. They couldn't see him, but he was there all along. But they missed him. And finally, he revealed himself and they could see clear as day. And my hope, my prayer for everyone in this room is that you would have this experience. God challenged me with this thought earlier this week. If Jesus is at the center of every scripture, then he deserves to be at the center of my life. If the entire Bible that was written over thousands of years by 40 plus authors, that God would arrange all of that content, that he would let all of those stories play out all for one reason, so that we could see Jesus. If that is true, if he is the center of everything God has written to us, then he should be the center of my life in every way. I can't tell you how many years as a Christian I lived as a chocolate chip cookie. Jesus was there. I mean, you could see it. You know, Jesus is in this guy's life. But he's not everywhere. And I don't want to be a chocolate chip cookie. Pastor Mike, do you want to be a chocolate chip cookie? Does anybody in here want to be a brownie? I want to be the kind of person that he has lordship over every part of my soul, every, every thought, every heartbeat, every moment. Every part of my life, I want infiltrated with Jesus. I want him baked into every bite. Thank you for listening. For more information about Healing Place Church, go to healingplacechurch.org or give us a call at 225-753-2273.